Hi, Kingston. Hi, Daddy. How are you today? Good. I just want to say thank you for letting me use your Iron Man mask <laughs> for Fort McMurray Reads. But Daddy, that's your mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right, kid. <laughs> and get ready for another episode of the Wine Man Podcast. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Let's do nine different ones. Welcome to Fort Mac. Gentlemen, welcome to the YMM podcast. And as always, I am Todsky. Um, doing a little intro to a special episode we got in store for you guys tonight. Um, yes, this weekend you heard us talking about it for the last couple months. Uh, you heard us tweeting about it nonstop, showing little previews. Um, it's funny because if you look at the YMM podcast Instagram or, or Twitter or Facebook feeds, it's just like all they're doing is just posting pictures of a comic book. <laughs> Uh, we were just trying to generate some interest for uh, the event that we were at this past weekend, the Saturday, called Fort McMurray Reads. Uh, a great, a great event put off by the library, which uh, had five people from the community uh, basically champion five books, uh, put them on a panel, and they each had to defend it and provide arguments and uh, to the audience. And basically, we were trying to decide the winner. The audience got to vote, uh, actually, for the winner for uh, best book out of the five. Um, so yeah, it was a really cool event on Saturday, uh, and we got it for you. That's right. Uh, we don't do too much in this house or in this life without having it recorded so I can put it on a podcast for all to, uh, display uh, sooner or later. So yeah, it was really cool with the, uh, the library letting me record it. Uh, obviously I recorded it for them, uh, so we, they can show off, uh, the cool event that they did and a really big thank you to them because it was such a well-organized and, and well-done event. Uh, so it was really cool of them to, to allow me to record it, put it as a podcast, uh, but hopefully it works out in their favor as well. So I can continue rambling on. Uh, so I'm going to keep going. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm going to give you guys a quick rundown of what you're going to hear. Uh, the audio got a little bit screwed up, so I do apologize. It's, uh, listen, it's listenable. Uh, you can definitely hear it. Uh, and hopefully if you've gotten this far in the YMM podcast world, you are kind of used to hearing messed up audio because I literally, uh, don't uh, know what I'm doing for the most part. Um, but yeah, every, you can hear everyone. Uh, like I said, the audio is a little bit screwed up because some people have their microphones close. Some people have their microphones far like this. And uh, uh, you hear a lot of background noise. Uh, and to be honest, I might have had something plugged in wrong. I don't really know. But I played with it a little bit. I got semi good or half decent maybe or maybe just okay at editing. So every, you can hear everyone. Sounds a little bit fishy, like sea-ish. Uh, you've heard the 
you've heard that in the podcast before where it sounds like we're underwater. Um, but the content's there. You can hear what we're saying. You can hear the arguments. You can hear all the epic stuff that happens. And to me, that is the main thing. Uh, so what you're going to hear is the entire Fort McMurray Reads event. Of course, sans all the breaks and, and, and idle chit chat that the mic's captured. But basically what you're going to hear is Kevin Thornton. Uh, he is a journalist and library board member. Uh, he actually served as the panel moderator. He's going to be the first voice you hear. Um, basically, he is going to be uh, guiding us through this epic journey for McMurray Reads 2012. And I'll give you the panelists now because he does introduce them. Um, but I just want to make sure everyone knows who was there. Uh, Becca Benoit. She's actually a journalist and book reviewer for the Connect Weekly. And she was defending or representing the book Miss Mike by Benedict and Nancy Friedman. Uh, so you're going to hear from her uh, all about it. And then we had uh, Ken Chapman. He's the lawyer and director for the Oil Sands Development Group. Uh, and he was representing Monsieur Chiodi by Graham Greene. God, I hope I said that right. Because basically before Saturday night, I had no idea how to even pronounce that book or didn't even know what the hell it was. Couldn't even pronounce it. Thought it was some kind of Spanish book. I, I got no idea. But anyway, uh, Ken kind of runs us through it really, really good. And I finally got to pronounce it. Hopefully I'm pronouncing it properly. I don't pronounce Quixote properly, um, but God knows what that first word is. Uh, but yeah, great. You, you'll hear it all better from Ken. Uh, up next, we had Kyle. Oh, man. He's, uh, I can never say his last name right, and he's going to kill me. Uh, Kyle Her- Hereda. Oh, wow. I totally tore that one up. Kyle H. <laughs> and I can't even give you his Twitter because his Twitter is just his actual name. Um Tell you what, it's all posted at wymanpodcast.com. Kyle, sorry, man. Um, feel free to phonetically spell your name on Twitter for me because I'm a pretty big idiot sometimes. Anyway, Kyle, Kyle H., our local political activist uh, and uh, political staffer. Great, great guy. Uh, been chatting with him on Twitter for for last couple of years. See him at the Tweet Ups. Awesome dude. Uh, and he brought in A Dance with Dragons uh, by George R.R. R. Martin. Is a book that he's going to be defending. Uh, he got some really funny moments. A generally funny guy. Awesome. Uh, you'll hear all about it uh, coming up there. Uh, then we had Teresa Wells, our good friend and family. Teresa Wells, uh, of course, the blogger for McMurray Musings. And she is going to be defending Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinzella. Hope I'm saying that right, too. Uh, basically, that book is off the movie Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner. Amazing, amazing movie. Didn't even know it was by a book, to be honest with you, because I'm not that bright. And, uh, yeah, you're going to be checking. You're going to hear her arguments, uh, and she's really, really compelling. Then we had a couple of geeks and losers on the panel, uh, a couple of guys by the name of Totsky and, and hopefully I'm saying this right, I'm really bad with names, uh, Tito. Uh, hopefully that's hopefully that's right. Um, yeah, and they were uh, defending this comic book called Marvels. So those are the panelists. Uh, like I said, Kevin does a great job. Uh, uh, he introduces everyone. And uh, gets everyone down uh, so you'll be able to hear it. Like I said, apologize for the audio. Uh, this is a long enough intro because it's about as long as Fort McMurray reads so far. Um, anyway, that's the hype up. Definitely check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, here we go with Fort McMurray Reads 2012. Well, good evening, everyone. Can you all hear me? And here's a nod from the back there. Thank you, Kieran. Welcome to Fort McMurray Reads and the culmination of Fort McMurray's Public Library's Summer Reading Program. 
We're pleased to have you here tonight for what promises to be a no-holds-barred literary showdown <laughs> as the members of our panel vie to have their chosen book voted for the Fort McMurray Reads Book of 2012. The one book everyone in Fort McMurray and the Wood Buffalo region should be reading this autumn. <clears throat> My name is Kevin Thornton. I am a columnist for the local newspaper, for one of the local newspapers, sorry. Thank you. <laughs> in which I am opinionated, annoying, and often reckless. I am the moderator for this evening. I have to be moderate and calm and polite, and I think they have picked the wrong person, but I will do the best I can. <laughs> Before I introduce you to tonight's fantastic panel, I'd like to take a few minutes to go over the rules of Fort McMurray Reads. This is a debate. Panel members will be presenting arguments to you to get you to vote for their favorite book. We'll start by giving each panelist three minutes on the clock to make the introductory statements. When they have a minute left, a sign will be held up. Can we see the sign, please? <coughs> you will just see the back of it, but know that it will be a minute to go. When their time is up, the gong will go. Shall we hear the gong? It's a very subtle gong. Gone without wind. Yes. <laughs> for a hook. That will mean that their time is up. They will finish their sentence and stop talking, or else they will have me interrupting them. This is the only part of the evening I get to have any fun. In the case of our tag team, Toski and Tito, who will both be representing the graphic novel Marvels, they will be taking it in turns. Only one member of the team will be allowed to talk. I hope they have decided which one will be doing which. Once the panelists have finished their introductions, the discussion uh, question round will begin. I will ask a general question, and each panelist will have three minutes to offer a response and or counter the arguments of the opponents. As before, there will be a one-minute warning, and then the gong will go at the end, and I get to interrupt people. When the discussion rounds have concluded, I will invite the panelists to make their closing statements, and again... We will have three minutes. This is their final chance to persuade you that the book is the one that Fort McMurray should be reading. After closing statements are done, I will go over the voting procedure with you, and you will get to cast your vote. This is very important because in addition to voting, there are also prizes involved, but more on that later. So now I am pleased to present our panelists, the good people who will be fighting tooth and nail to win your votes this evening. Rebecca Benoit is a journalist, a writer, and a book reviewer for Connect Weekly, the other newspaper. <laughs> this evening she will be arguing for her Fort McMurray Reads selection, Mrs. Mike by Benedict and Nancy Friedman, an adventure story with a heart and a very Canadian sense of place. And we'll see if Fort McMurray Reads voters will say I do to Mrs. Mike in tonight's vote. <clears throat> Ken Chapman is a lawyer, executive director of the Oil Sands Developers Group, and a dedicated promoter of arts and culture in Fort McMurray as chair of the newly formed Arts Council. His book of choice for Fort McMurray reads is Monsignor Quixote by Graham Greene. With an excellent literary pedigree and some important political and philosophical themes, 
Monsignor Quixote isn't just tilting at windmills, and it is definitely a major contender in this competition. <laughs> Carl Harrieffer is a prominent Liberal Party activist and a former House of Commons political staffer. As a fan of George R. R. Martin's best-selling A Song of Ice and Fire series, he will be arguing for the fifth and most recent book, A Dance with Dragons. Our audience might have already encountered the popular TV adaptation of the series Game of Thrones on HBO, but rest assured, the original series of books bring re brings readers even more action and excitement in Westeros and the Seven Kingdoms. This evening we will find out if Kyle can convince Fort McMurray to dance with dragons and try Martin's brand of epic fantasy. Teresa Wells is a local writer, the author of the popular blog Fort McMurray Musings, and she writes for the other newspaper, and a passionate advocate for Fort McMurray in the Wood Buffalo region. This evening she will be advocating for Shoeless Joe by W.B. Kinsella, <coughs> a book with a message about pursuing one's dreams even to the most unlikely of places. We'll see if Shoeless Joe's inspirational story resonates with Fort McMurray Reed's voters. And Totsky and Tito are the hosts of the YMM podcast and are the resident comic book and graphic novel experts on our panel. They will be working as a dynamic duo to fight for the award-winning graphic novel Marvels, written by Kurt Busiek and illustrated by Alex Ross. To keep things fair, only one of them will be able to answer each of the questions presented to the panel. With the perennial popularity of superheroes, we'll discover if Marvels can wow our audience tonight. I wish all our panelists good luck in this evening's debate, and I will now invite each panelist to introduce his or her book and provide opening arguments. You have three minutes to do so, and we will start in alphabetical order by surname with Rebecca. So every week I read a different book to review for The Connect. So you might be wondering why of all the books I could have chosen, of all the award winners and, and bestsellers on my bookshelf, why did I choose a novel that was written 65 years ago uh, and it takes place over 100 years ago? How, you might be wondering, could this story, quaint and charming though it might be, appeal to today's sophisticated reader? Mrs. Mike is a timeless story. It's the kind of book that you can read over and over again, and every time you pick it up, you learn to love it anew for different reasons. I discovered this book quite by accident when I was 12 years old, and I still have a copy, that paperback copy. It's now very dog-eared and battered. Its cover is creased past the point of recognition. Its pages are loose and its binding is cracked. It's a much-loved book, and for good reason. Mrs. Mike is the true story of Catherine Mary O'Fallon, a young girl who marries a Mountie and leaves behind everything she knows for a new life in the untamed Canadian North. In the early days of the 20th century, young Boston-born Kathy is sent north dry healing air of her Uncle John's Alberta Calaranch. It's only to be for a short visit, just to improve Kathy's lungs, until Kathy lays eyes on Sergeant Mike Flanagan of Northwest Mounted Police. <coughs> One glance into those eyes, so blue you could swim, swim in them, as Kathy confides to a friend, and the story of her life is rewritten chapter and verse. Instead of returning to the busy streets of Boston, Kathy instead goes north by train to Edmonton in the company of her new husband. It's a three-month journey by dog sled from Edmonton to the small village of Gruard on the shores of Lesser Slave Lake, 
but it might, might as well be a world away from Boston. And to give you a bit of context, Gruard is about 150 kilometers due west of Wandering River. So it's, it's south of us. But in 1905, it was about as far north as you could go. Here, Kathy will learn to keep house and make friends with her Aboriginal neighbors. She'll bear children while the northern lights dance above. She will stand waist deep in a river while the forest burns around her. She'll assist her husband, who is the law as well as the doctor and the dentist, pull teeth, give vaccinations, and comfort the dying. She'll hear the legends of the beaver people and be enchanted. She will laugh until her sides hurt, and she'll know sorrow as dark and as deep as the night sky. In short, in this wild, beautiful, and unforgiving land, she will make a life. Mrs. Mike is a beautifully crafted piece of historical fiction, but at its heart, it's just a great story. It's a story to tug at the heartstrings, to make you roar with laughter, to resonate long after the final page is turned. It's one of those books you can't put down, but at the same time, you don't want to get to the end because you know, as improbably as it seems, that you're going to miss the people that you've met in its pages and the world that you've inhabited so completely. It's a story that makes you want to share it with other people, the people that will be as moved and as haunted by the beauty and the simplicity of the story as you've been. And that's what makes it a classic. That's why it's been in print continuously for nearly seven decades. And that's why it should be on everybody's must-read list, because it's our story. It's a story that speaks to every one of us here in Fort McMurray who has come from far away, who has taken a chance on a new life, and who has chased a <laughs> And now I'm done. And it has run on sentences. You're, you're on for, for future reference, there are no more than three subordinate clauses per final sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, your turn. The book is Monsignor Quixote by Grand Green. How many people here have read Don Quixote? Good. Um, I have to uh, complain to the Fort McMurray Library for forcing me to do this because they appeal to my ego. <laughs> and I'm an English major. I got my degree by only reading five novels. I did. It, I got my degree by reading poetry and plays. And I pride myself in not reading novels. And they were going to bend the rules so I could read nonfiction, but I thought, no, nah, that's kind of arrogant, and I don't want to do that. So I can tell you, this is the best novel I've read in 20 years. <laughs> the only novel I've read in 20 years. <laughs> and I... My wife was up here visiting with me, and I uh, was no, I had to pick a book. So we went to the library to get a book. So we went to take a book out of the library. And so they were selling some old books. And I bought this book for 50 cents. I made a real serious investment in this competition. <laughs> I gave them five bucks, and they didn't know what to do with the other 450, but they kept it. Um, and then I started reading it, and I got into it. And there's another thing that ticks me off about Fort McMurray Library making me do this, is now I'm reading Don Quixote. It's 800 pages, <laughs> and I'm enjoying it. So may, you may not be impressed with my, my defense of this, but it's starting to change my life, and I'm not sure it's for the better. Uh, I'm reading fiction now. Damn it. Okay. <laughs> and what this is is a pastiche. This is an imitation of the original. It's a satire. It's got irony in it. It's about, and it's, and it's not true. It's, it's very fun, but they run parallels to the original, to the original text. Uh, and it's about a, a small parish priest and, a, and a, an ex-mayor who just lost the election, Roman Catholic priest and a communist ex-mayor right after Franco in Spain. And they go off traveling and they're afraid. Of, he, the parish priest is afraid of everything that he sees. And he's making stuff up in terms of the beliefs of the church and the hierarchy of the church. 
and and the communist is taking him to brothels and showing him all kinds of different adventures, which is kind of what happens in Quixote. But what's what's fascinating about the book is that it's true to the so far. That's so why I got into Quixote. It's true to the themes in the original book. Yeah, if you read this one, I can guarantee you, you're going to want to read Quixote. So. If you, I may not win this competition, but those of you who take up this book and read it, if you have my experience, it'll make you very curious about the original. And as I go through the questions, I'll tell you more about the original. It's fascinating, too. Thank you. And moving along. Oh, yeah. And my book is, my book is based on a 400-year-old book, 60 years. <laughs> <laughs> Rule number two that has not been announced. Once you're finished, you're finished. <laughs> Kyle and I, but for the life of me, there it is. A Dance with Dragons. Thanks, Kevin. There's a, there's, there's a lot of them. I couldn't remember which particular one it was. My apologies. Well, I'm really glad to be here to talk about the, uh, the best book, regardless of the final outcome in the, uh, in the actual vote, uh, A Dance with Dragons. A Dance with Dragons, written by George R.R. Uh, R. Martin, is the fifth book. Um, <laughs> of the series uh, called The Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, the first book was written in 1996. Uh, I remember being given the book. It was 1997, and I've always read high fantasy, epic fantasy, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, etc., etc. They're very predictable. There's good versus evil. The good person always wins. They go through a lot of stuff where you know they're not actually going to die or anything like that, and everything ends happily ever after, much like The Lord of the Rings. So for someone who's sort of been brought up in that sort of high fantasy, epic fantasy uh, paradigm, this book is just shocking. It's totally unpredictable. It's totally morally ambiguous. All of the characters have elements of, uh, of good and evil. For those who aren't familiar with high fantasy, if you don't, the, the actual genre, it's basically set in, in an alternate world. Um, so the world here is, uh, takes place on the continent of Westeros. And there are seven kingdoms. It's based on the, uh, basically on the medieval period of human history. But most of the medieval movies we watch, you know, some people refer to them as Disney medieval, whereas George R. R. Martin really shows the brutality of, uh, of the medieval period. It's uh, what I would probably label an adult accompaniment uh, book. So it's certainly uh, <clears throat> something for uh, young adults and older uh, to read because uh, in parts it's pretty graphic. It goes back over thousands of years of history. So you're, you're in the Seven Kingdoms, the medieval period. If you know your British history, it's somewhat taken from the War of the Rose period of, uh, of the United Kingdom or England and Scotland at the time. And it's a feudal society with seven different families, a king sort of there, and uh, they're all fighting with each other, and they're not, uh, they're not very nice. It really has the feel of historical fiction. It's not, it doesn't have the feel of your, typical, of your typical fantasy. There's a lot of realism to it. There is magic involved. There's dragons. There's walking dead people and stuff like that. But the magic's subdued, and it really focuses on the battles and the, and the and and political intrigue, which obviously I'm super into. So um, major characters are repeatedly killed off, which is really shocking. People that are good, people that you think are going to live forever, they die brutally. And uh, there's a diverse portrayal of religions and women. 22 million in sales, 20 languages, adapted as an HBO series, lots of historical parallels. I'd say this is definitely a book you want to read, particularly if you're watching the uh, Game of Thrones series right now. Thank you.
And rule number three, we're not allowed to bash on the, the echo on the table. I'm going to find something that all of you have done wrong. Tosky and Tino, the book Marvels, the writer Kurt Busiek. Tosky's up. <laughs> uh, yes, I am wearing a cape as well. Um, all right, so it's an honor and a privilege to be selected as a panelist for Fort McMurray Reads 2012. I was actually so excited that uh, I called up my mom right away and was just like, we're going to be in Fort McMurray Reads. And she's like, why? You haven't read a book since high school. <laughs> so well, what exactly are you going to be doing? And uh, I told her Tita and I were going to be defending Marvels, uh, which is, I had to explain what that was. It's a graphic novel that takes place uh, in the Marvel comic universe. And I was met with a very strong silence and, of course, that awkward pause of, well, you know uh, comics aren't really novels, right? They're, they're only for kids. So, you see, this is a very common thought process that's been plaguing comic lovers for, for years and years, both young and old. And uh, it's a problem that we're going to hopefully solve tonight for the, for the better. Tito and I picked Marvels, of course, written by Kirk, Kirk Busick and illustrated by the incredibly talented uh, Alex Ross, uh, since we believe it is the strongest showing of just how much of an impact a graphic novel can make. Uh, Marvels takes place in the world of the golden age of comics, uh, where it answers the question, what would it be like if superheroes and supervillains actually existed? What would we do as normal people if, we were, if there was extraordinary people around us? Marvels, shown, uh, Marvels is shown through the eyes of the everyman, the normal person, uh, a photographer uh, actually named by uh, Phil Sheldon. This was an interesting spin on very classic tales from the comics that we've all come to know and love. It's an outsider perspective from a real person dealing with real issues caused by unreal problems. What we want to prove tonight is that graphic novels, comics, can be considered a real novel. They have a very strong story arcs with lots of twists, lots of turns, absolutely incredible characters with amazing backstories, very interesting perspectives, and most importantly, they have heart. You can become emotionally involved in some of these characters, just like the ones in Shoeless Joe or Mr. Mike. Sorry, Mrs. Mike, uh, just to name a few. And what we want to prove is that comics can stand up. Sorry. What we want to prove is that comics can stand up to any other amazing piece of literature out there. And tonight, it's going to beat the four of the ones you see at this table as the, the book that Phil McMurray wants to read this year. Thank you. And I'm not picking on the guy with a cape, you know, never to do that. And the irony of the evening, Teresa Wells defending a book that has the word shoeless in it. Shoeless Joe by <laughs> Kinsella, W.P. Kinsella. Go on, Teresa. Thank you, Kevin. When the Fort McMurray Public Library contacted me and asked me to choose a book uh, to defend on this panel, I knew there were two criteria I wanted to meet. I wanted to select a Canadian author simply because we have so many fantastic Canadian authors. Uh, and I wanted a book that was relevant to our experience in Fort McMurray. I thought long and hard, and the book that came to my mind was Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella, which I first read in 1982 when it was published. Many of you have probably seen the movie Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner. What many people don't realize is that movie was based on the book Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella. The movie talks a lot about magic, and the book is ostensibly about baseball, except it's about much, much more than baseball. It's about following your dreams. Ray Kinsella is a young man from Montana who goes to Iowa to sell insurance. He meets a young woman, falls in love, and realizes that in order to make her happy, he's going to need to stay in Iowa. So he buys a corn farm. He's not a very good farmer, but he does it anyhow. 
One night he's looking over his cornfields and a voice speaks to him and it's a baseball announcer and the voice says, if you build it, he will come. And he suddenly sees a vision of a baseball stadium in a cornfield in Iowa. It takes a lot of courage to follow your dreams and Ray Kinsella knows that people are going to think he's crazy. He's following a voice. People are going to think that there's no possible way this can happen. And he doesn't even know what will happen. He doesn't know where the path will take him. He doesn't know who he is, but he has a feeling. So he raises down his cornfield and he starts to build a baseball stadium with his bare hands. He's never built anything in his life. He builds a baseball stadium and then he waits. And one night, players appear. Players like Shoeless Joe Jackson, who've been gone for many, many years. And he watches them play baseball. And he gets to talk to them. But the voice, the baseball announcer, doesn't stop there. It asks him to do more. It asks him to find other people to join the path, to go on that journey. And he has to convince other people that this is the journey they need to take as well. I feel this is relevant to Fort McMurray because so many people come here to take a journey. They don't know where it's going to end. They don't know where this path will take them, but they're following their dreams. They're following a voice, perhaps not a baseball announcer, but a voice in their head that is telling them that there is something to be found here. There is potential, and they come here to follow their dreams. When I was invited to be on this panel, I knew that the only book I could choose to defend was Shoeless Joe Jackson. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. This was surely... An inspiring start to the evening, and we will now move straight into the discussion rounds. I just, uh, I just have to tell you that they're not coming totally surprised. They do have some idea of what's what's coming, so we hope that they are all prepared. In fiction, it is important to have interesting characters the readers will want to follow throughout the narrative. What makes the character in your chosen novel so compelling? And why would Fort McMurray readers want to read about these characters and their lives? And again, we'll start over here. Characters are the lifeblood of any good story. You can love them, you can hate them, but you must be able to identify with them. That's the mark of a great author, to be able to bring characters truly to life so that readers can feel what they feel, can glory in their triumphs, can ache with them in their sorrow. I think this is one of the reasons this book continues to resonate with readers after so many years. Kathy and Mike, though they live in a very different time, are just like us. Kathy has flaws and failings. One of my favorite parts of this book is when she decides to bring the trappings of civilization to the native people that live near her. She's so puffed up with her own self-importance. She's so convinced that she can bring the light of the modern era into these benighted people. During the course of the novel, as she comes to know her Aboriginal neighbors as her friends and depend on them for their skills, their generosity, and their patience for her very survival, Kathy reaches the realization that she's learned far more from them than they're ever going to learn from her. And I can really see myself in Kathy as a young woman fresh out of school and determined to change the world with my shiny new ideas. And I look back on that girl as Kathy does with nostalgia and gentle humor from the perspective of a grown woman with experience behind me. Every time I read this book, I love it for a different reason, and I've read it a lot of times. The first time I read it as a child on the cusp of adulthood, with my whole life in front of me, I love Mrs. Mike for the adventure, for the idea of a new world to be discovered and to be conquered. Kathy's future was wide open as she set off for Gruard, much as my own was. And now as a young mother, I appreciate how authentic Kathy's experience of motherhood was. 
I wish that Kathy labors with her first daughter. I may have had a better pain reliever than a towel tied to a bed frame, but I had felt that same pain, and I had known the triumph of holding my newborn in my arms. As a mom, I have known the simple joys of watching your child take her first steps or kick, kick her little chubby legs in the bath. And I felt that same helplessness and fear that grips you when your child is ill and there's nothing you can do. I can't wait to read the book again in another five or ten years to experience yet another facet of this book because it's so richly imagined and so deeply nuanced. When you're immersed in the story of Mrs. Mike, the characters cease to become characters. They really do become people. And when the story's over, you miss them. And in my opinion, that's high praise for a book by anybody's standards. There you go. No, I'll save my questions for further, the, the, the question I have for further on, because I, I might, might jump the gun on you there. Ken, your turn. Okay. <coughs> Becky's right. Characters are, are the core to the narrative. You've got to care about them, love them or hate them, but you care about them one way or the other. Um, the characters, Monsignor Quixote and, <coughs> and Sanchez in, in, uh, in Graham Greene's novel are just pure takeoffs. Uh, in, set in the 1930s of characters that were, are 400 years old and that are universal. Uh, this is a takeoff, a classic. Um, to say that these characters are significant, these characters have won Golden Globe Awards for movies. They've won Tony Awards for Broadway plays. They've been painted by Dali and Picasso. They've, they're subject of symphonies and ballets. There are statues around the world to these characters. And they're, what makes them important is because they're not morally ambiguous, they're humanly ambiguous. They are making trade-offs and trying to find out what's going on. They live in a world of delusion, and that delusion is caused because of their education. The more they read, the more the, more, the crazier Coyote got. And the Monsignor didn't become a knight. He was just a local priest and by accident became a Monsignor. Uh, and the fraud was caught. The mayor was Sanchez, uh, is somebody you care about, but he's a, he's a burnt out, nasty old guy that has had enough of the world and is about to go and, and have this adventure with the Monsignor. It, it's tragic. Uh, the bad guy lives, the good guy dies. Um, but the reality of this is, is that, uh, in, in quote, in quoting one of, one of the great quotes out of this that I, that I want to share with you that I've got some time for is, uh, well, when Shakespeare even wrote a variation off of this. It's, 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 well, it's been well documented. Here's, here's a great quote that comes out of it. Is it in, in, in honor to, the, to, my, to my fellow panelists, there's no book so bad that it does not have something good in it. So I'm not sure their books are going to be any good uh, compared to this one. 400 years of character development and, and following. Come on, give me a thing. And, uh, and, and this is the other kind of attitude that they have that I think that Fort McMurray can relate to. There's, for, for neither good nor evil can last forever, and so, and so as it follows, since evil has lasted for so long, the good must be close at hand. This is a pioneering spirit place. People come here with dreams, and they come here with illusions of what's going on, and they try and find their way. We have a lot of citizens tilting at windmills that they think are giants, and a lot of people who are, who are facing giants and are afraid to know how to deal with those kinds of things. It's a very relevant theme to what's going on in the people that are coming here and why they're coming here and what they're trying to make in their lives. Um, I, I think it's a very intelligent book. Uh, I think that it's funny. It's satirical. It's not slapstick like, like Quixote is. 
it's more philosophical about that, but it's it's a it's a very fun, it's a good read. It's a fun read. Well, if there's one thing I'll say about the characters in the Dance with Dragons and the entire series is that they're extremely compelling. By the time the fifth book, uh, we get into the fifth book, there are about 31 characters that have been uh, introduced. Well, there's more than 31 characters, but 31 characters from whose perspective, third-person perspective, you've you've seen the story over the over the over the story arc of the five novels. Since only got three minutes, I'll get into my four sort of favorite characters. There's a few characters I really don't like, but I work my way through the chapters and hate them more the more I read them. But uh, there's Daenerys Targaryen. She's the uh, the daughter of uh, the former king of Westeros, um, who was uh, brutally murdered in an act of regicide. And the story basically, the whole War of the Seven Kingdoms, the story of the Seven Kingdoms basically follows the political fallout of this regicide. A gentleman, Robert Baratheon, becomes the king, and a clash of kings starts effectively halfway through the book with the death of Robert Baratheon and the struggle to become the king of the or queen of the of the Seven Kingdoms, and Daenerys uh, comes from this family, and she's over in another con and traveling around, trying to put an army together. She's about 13 years old in the book uh, to, uh, to to come back and take her rightful place. Um, there's Tyrion Lannister. Tyrion is a dwarf, and he's basically the most acid-tongued, clever little guy you will uh, ever see. I could not put his best quotes out there in polite company, but just to say he would quickly become your favorite uh, your favorite character, and he's quite the political operative. There's Jon Snow. Um, in the world of Westeros, Ill- illegitimate children are treated badly. Um, and the illegitimate children of lords are, are given particular names. In the north, it's Snow. Um, in the west, it's Stone, where the mountains are, and uh, sorry, in the east. And uh, he goes up to what's called the Wall. It's this northern defensive wall where this, there's this order of knights, uh, effectively, that defend this wall. And it's this frozen north, and there's these mysterious people off in the distance. And his story is quite compelling because it gives a very brutal uh, assessment of, uh, you know, it'd be, what would it be like to live in the Northwest Territories in the medieval period? Rough more than likely, uh, or in Norway or Sweden or up there. And then my favorite character is uh, Arya Stark, who's uh, this, uh, I think she's basically seven or eight years old when uh, when her father uh, is killed at the same time as the as the king. And it's, it's the story of her trying to get by, trying to survive, ending up in all these strange places uh, over the world, and, uh, an extremely compelling character. But like I said, these characters are very morally ambiguous, particularly the rest of the characters, and it's uh, pretty shocking what they'll do sometimes to uh, to stay alive and survive in this uh, world. The basic premise of the Game of Thrones is if you play the Game of Thrones, you either win or you die, and that's basically the uh, the whole it's the plot line of the of the series. So, good timing. And the, the dazzling duo, who's that? I am. Um, hi, I'm Tito. <laughs> uh, my Steam uh, panelists here—they uh, talk about the longevity of these characters, and you know uh, things like you know them being 400 years old, and in terms of being in literature and uh, the cultural impact of these characters. But uh, if you think of characters like Gilgamesh, Beowulf, even Zeus, 
I mean, all of these are archetypes for these comic book characters. These uh, these marvels are actually modern mythology. Um, I, we'd be hard pressed to find anyone in this room that hasn't heard of Spider-Man, Thor, the Hulk, Iron Man. Given the fact that uh, Avengers is the second highest grossing movie of all time right now, I mean, it's it's a testament to the longevity and the cultural impact of these characters. Um, Simply stated, uh, the most iconic thing about this story is the fact that these marvels are secondary to Sheldon. Sheldon is actually the main character of this story and well-suited as a photographer because this story is actually about perspective. Um, what what an, a certain action or an event might mean to the regular man as opposed to uh, Peter Parker. Right, uh, he might have a different perspective of what happened, and to that to that end, it's actually very analog- analogous to uh, Fort McMurray. Um, a lot of us have perspectives of what we think Fort McMurray are, and you know, so do people outside of this community. And uh, this story is really about how close are you to the story? How close are you to the events that are occurring? Uh, how close are you to the community itself? Um, what I will say. Uh, in addition to this, would be the fact that this story is universal. These characters are universal and are appealing to younger readers as well as mature readers because this graphic novel can be uh, enjoyed on several levels. Not just the the regular reader that wants to see an action story, but the reader that's actually looking on a commentary on uh, North North American culture because essentially that's what comic books are. Uh, Comic books are essentially the, the unique culture of North America. It's one of the art forms that that North America is very proud to have made their own. Um, the only other thing I will say in regards to these characters is that we've had um, Oscar-winning uh, actors represent them in films. We've had um, we've had a community that has kind of embraced them here in North America. And um, the last thing I can actually say about these characters is even Shelving is that um, the difference between dreamers and doers is the conviction to get things done. And I believe that, just like superheroes, this community has a lot of conviction. Thank you. And good timing as well. <laughs> These people have been practicing, haven't they? They've been at home sort of out with a stopwatch saying, well, that's two minutes 57. Good, good, good for them. Teresa, you're up. Thanks, Kevin. It's very easy to fall in love with the characters in Shoeless Joe. Ray Kinsella is every man. He's no different than anyone else and every person on this planet. When he hears the voice, I'm sure at some level he must wonder why me, but he doesn't really question it. He understands that he's been given a purpose and a goal, and he decides to follow it. Ray happens to be married to a woman named Annie, who not only loves him, but she believes in him. I think many women, if their husband came and said, I'm going to destroy our potential livelihood, raise down our cornfield, and build a baseball stadium for ghost baseball players. Many women probably wouldn't support this idea. Annie says, do it. When he comes back to her and says, I've been asked to go across the country to find reclusive author J.D. Salinger because I think this is important to him too. Annie doesn't say stop. She says, do it. She gives Ray the courage he needs to follow his dreams and the support he needs. The weaving in of other characters such as J.D. Salinger is quite bold simply because J.D. Salinger, author of Catcher in the Rye, is very reclusive and very little is known as to what happened to him after he wrote Catcher in the Rye. But the inclusion of that author gives this book yet another level. It speaks to how other people may have dreams that have been unfulfilled. And then there's other characters in the novel, such as the baseball players themselves, who come out of the cornfield every night into the mist to play on a baseball stadium 
And clearly they don't understand what's going on. They play and then they disappear back into the cornfield, but they come because they too have a dream. Again, I think people in this region would be interested in these characters because they're no different than any of us. People come to follow their dreams. People have voices in their head that say, you should try this, you should do this. Many of us don't listen to the voices or we allow the people around us who don't support us to deter us from following those dreams. Ray Kinsella follows those dreams and he manages to convince other people along the way to follow their dreams as well. I think it resonates with pretty much every person in this community and in this region. Thank you. You're right. It is a book about characters, isn't it? it, it it's, uh, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's not just Jerry Salinger and Ray Kinsella, and, 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 but it's, it's going back to his father as well and everything. Very, very character-driven story. Absolutely, it is. Okay. Thanks very much. The plot's the thing. Here's the difficult question of the evening. Without giving away any major plot spoilers, how would you characterize the plot of your chosen novel? Here's the conundrum. Is it slow or fast-paced, action-oriented, or more quiet and contemplative? <coughs> Excuse me. Why do you think the plot of this book would interest the local readers or be relevant to our community? Rebecca. It's hard to characterize the plot of this book as a fast-paced adventure story or a dreamy romance or a gripping, suspense-filled drama or a well-timed comedy. I think, like any great story, it has all of these elements within its plot. When you read a good book, just like listening to a good yarn around a campfire, the consummate storyteller knows how to pace the story, how to draw out suspense, how to balance the adrenaline rush of fast-paced scene with light moments of humor or emotionally heavy dramatic scenes. And that's how it is with Mrs. Mike. The plot pulls you in and it moves you along, much like the rivers that figure so largely in this story. By turns, the plot is fast-paced and adventuresome, as it is when Kathy and the rest of the village are fleeing a forest fire that's destroying everything in its path. And sometimes it's light and it's humorous, as when Mike tries every trick in his arsenal to outsmart a silver wolf that's been hanging around his cabin or when he has to pull a tooth. And uh, in other places, it's slow-moving and it's deeply emotional, as when death stalks the village and Kathy finds herself helpless against its relentless menace. Unlike many other books I've read, and I read a lot of books, I've never once found myself skimming through a long-winded description in Mrs. Mike or silently imploring the author to get to the point already. The timing of the plot is dead on. It captures the reader from the very first page until the very last page. And each piece of the story is interconnected, it's interwoven, like the threads of a rich tapestry. Uh, and it leads up to an ending that is its at once happy and it's also heartbreakingly sad, which is just like life. And another one of the things I love so much about this book. I got to admit that when I read it, and I started the first 20 pages and I shouted to she, I must be obeyed. Oh God, it's a love story. <laughs> and she shouted back, well, you got to read it, not me. And it's not. It, 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 it sort of heads towards there for the 20 pages and you, you become so engrossed in the story and, and, and the plot and everything. So if that is the book you choose tonight, or even if it's not, if it is uh, one of the books, you should read it and get past that first, first 20 pages if, if you're a man. <laughs> Ken? Uh, it's neither fast-paced nor slow-paced. It's quiet and con contemplative, con contemplative and action-oriented all at the same time. 
the action is farce. Um, it's it's all delusion. People interpreting facts in in the wrong way, and every round everybody around them knows that they don't get it. So in some ways, you feel that you can have fun with the characters because of the delusions, and you can actually love them and enjoy them. That and it takes very little time for it to turn into cruelty, um, and you see that happening. In, in many cases throughout this throughout these stories uh, again and again and again and the sad situation is, is that people who have these dreams get taken advantage of and can be and can be mocked um, because they're delusional with these dreams there's the mad the mad amongst us it's a great book by Thomas Sass called The Manufacture of Madness uh, and this it reminded me having read that it's a non-fiction book it's a it's a, it's a legal book about the insanity plea, but uh, I I got back to that reading this book. The um, the reason it'd be interesting to local readers, I think, is because it's a very easy read. It's a it's a light light read, but I think you'd be well advised. And I wish I had read the original first, because what's going to happen to me is I'm going to read the original and then I'm going to read this book again. But I can tell you everything I've heard everywhere so far. But these, all these other books, it's in Quixote. It's it's in this book. It was called the best. It was it's the first book of modern Western literature. It's called the best book ever written by the World Library. It's the first novel ever written, and it's still the best novel by the experts. I'm not telling you anything more than the experts say, but you can read these other guys' books, but read this one first. You'll understand their books a lot better. How many years, uh, Ken? Four, 400, 400 years. 1605 and 1615. It was two volumes. Just making sure. <laughs> was that, would, would that be Don Quixote or Monsignor Quixote? Monsignor was written in 82. But uh, it's based on the original book. You can't read this without going to the original book. Where's the hook? What's that? Get him off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it follows one of the grand themes of literature, doesn't it? The, the, the road story, the, the, the travel story as well. I mean, it's, it's a theme that goes, goes back to Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales. And uh, certainly Graham Greene has a lot of fun with that. And of course he steals from the master himself, Cervantes. Thanks, Ken. Carl? I would describe... It's, it's really difficult to say, to really describe the plot of where Game of Thrones is right now. It'd be like saying, you know, you're in the middle of an election campaign. What's the plot of the election campaign? Well, once the campaign's over, you can go back and you can say, oh, it was the little guy who came out of nowhere who, who, who won it. It was the story of how that little guy did it, or it was the story of how this big blue machine in some other province sort of rolled over everybody else. You know, you don't really know that when you're right in the middle of it. And you're right in the middle of it in the, uh, in the game of, you're right in the middle of it in the Song of Ice and, in the Song of Ice and Fire, you know, you can go to these, you know, these other books where you can get the Coles notes and this is the whole story arc. We don't know what's going to happen in the next book. You actually don't know what's going to happen chapter to chapter. That's what makes it unpredictable. That's what makes it exciting. And that's why it's really awesome to get into a series when the author is in the midst of writing that series, because you sit there and you'll wait two, three, four, five years for that author to come out with the next book. And I can tell you, after having read the first four books, I think I devoured this book in about uh, a week. It was that compelling once you've, once you've gone through, once you've gone through the other uh, four books. Uh, it certainly does get 
There are slower paces, there are fast paces, but that's because you're bouncing from character to character and chapter to chapter because they're in different parts of uh, of the of the world of uh, George Martin. Um, it's really the characters that make it uh, compelling. Uh, I, I can't describe enough. George Martin is absolutely masterful at uh, at character development. You you come to know these characters, how they think, what actions uh, what actions they would take. And uh, it really speaks to the different elements of the of the human condition in terms of how these people behave, how they react, and how their lives end, and uh, how their lives end in some cases. Uh, for local readers, I think uh, anybody who wants to see interesting characters, anybody who's uh, you know this is this is a world where there are vast landscapes, there are people that travel around, and and anybody most people who aren't born and raised in Fort McMurray, you know, have moved from another part of the world and they've felt the sort of fear and unpredictability that comes from going to uh, from moving to a new place and meeting new people where different ideas are coming together and different things. Uh, happen and you see that in this book and as you're going through the book think of the medieval map people some people thought the world was flat i know aristotle didn't but some people thought the world was flat most of africa hadn't been mapped you know in our own medieval world and the world was a lot smaller to these people and as the world starts very small in the north and in the first book of this series and then it starts to expand over time as you come to know these families the interactions and then you start to learn some of the history you know it's like moving to fort Worth, murray where you met a local and so and so did this with so and so this this many years ago and that's the sort of uh and then you start to get the small town feel of what of what this community is really like so very compelling in terms of plot and character development. Ooh, we just got in there, didn't we? In the, the last couple of comments Carl's made, he's compared this book to The War of the Roses, and it sounds like the Canadian election of 2011. We're looking forward to the next installment, Carl. I was talking about the provincial one, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> the two T's. Who's up? Uh, Tonsky is up. All right, so we're talking plot. Um, Marvels is a very much a larger-than-life story, but it's still very human, and I find this is exactly what compels me to, to be so enthralled with this kind of book. Um, it's not your typical uh, comic book. It's not good versus evil, uh, evil dies, good wins. And I find it's stuff that strays away from that typical formula is what draws people into uh, a more a book. Anything could draw someone in, but this actually could capture your attention and really make you part of the story. Um, the plot uh, for uh, for Marvels uh, encompasses 40 years, and, and over these 40 years, it really covers a lot of the very famous comic book arcs uh, that everyone comes to know uh, when they start reading comics. But what benefits is that it's from a different perspective. We get the perspective of Phil Sheldon, the photographer. And to me, it's a third-party view, and it's a complete view that attracts that... It, uh, maybe if I talk properly, I'll get through it. Okay, it's a view that actually can capture someone's imagination because it's exactly what I've asked myself when I'm watching some of these movies. What if I'm the person that owns the car that the Hulk just smashed? What if I was the person that was in that building that went crumbling down? And there's also a little teaser uh, for any well, spoilers, I guess, for Avengers, if anyone's seen the movie. At the very end, uh, there's a, a still that says, uh, in the end of Avengers, uh, Four insurance companies go bankrupt over two billion dollar uh, insurance claims because the city was totaled, and I find it's stuff like that that really makes you, it puts into reality and it gives you a perspective that's just absolutely out of this world and it can capture your attention uh, and also imagination. Uh, but partly that Marvel's plot is so good, uh, it also uh, compares uh, these people to 
like just the average ordinary person. Um, like if the, the events in New York City is where it's happening in, in Marvels, and what happens to the people that's reading these headlines? Like say if we're on Twitter and you see uh, Spider-Man uh, saves woman's per Like if you're reading these from a point of view and a perspective, that actually can get your imagination going. And to me, it's absolutely incredible um, to show as well. That uh, threw me off. It's a show as well. Uh, totally lost track now where I was. Um, oh, yeah. Sheldon's arc revolves around trying to make the world. Okay. The photographer is trying to show the, the natural side, the, the human side for these superheroes. And some of the public is, still has a very uh, bad opinion of them, which references how we're like in Fort McMurray as well. You see someone come up to the region, uh, write this horrible article that they've uh, uh, experienced in this town. And it's not the truth because you're not actually there. And this is a, a reference to Phil Sheldon, who's actually in um, New York that's following these guys around, that's trying to show the world the true side of these people. But some people still develop bad opinions of them. Tosky, it's also a plot that works on three and maybe even more levels, because a, a young teenager could pick up this book and be introduced against the characters. Somebody who's never read them for 30 years could pick it up and, and, and go back and think, yeah, that's interesting. What does happen the next day after the Hulk wrecks uh, havoc to Manhattan? And then there's the third plot, which is the, the people like the, the you, and, you and I, who have read these things avidly over the years and who sort of get all the little in-jokes as well. It's pretty much like a Pixar movie that is on several levels. It's quite a, the, the, the plot is... Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's definitely designed for beginners where you can look back at some of the stuff that's happened and go further into that event. Well, thank you very much, Teresa. Okay. Um, I would definitely characterize Shoeless Joe as more quiet and, and contemplative in terms of, of a novel. Um, while Ray Kinsella does go on a physical journey in parts of the novel, fundamentally this is a, a journey of the heart. It's, it's a journey of faith that Ray is, is taking when the baseball announcer first comes to him with an idea. Um, I'd like to speak more about why I think the plot is, is relevant to local readers, irrelevant to the community. I think what's most interesting about what's happening in this region is collectively, I think we are going on a journey of the heart and a journey of faith. We're sitting in a facility right now that is slated for a $121 million expansion. We are looking at a city center redevelopment plan. Uh, we are looking at an expansion of our airport. This is a journey of faith in this community. We are making an investment in the future in this community, and we are doing so with the faith that this community is going to continue to grow, to expand, to become more than what it is now. It takes a lot of courage to go on a journey of faith. And I think that's why people will identify with the plot in this book. Throughout it all, Ray has a steadfast belief that his journey is taking him somewhere. It's taking him to an end, although he doesn't know what the end will be. He doesn't know where the path is going to take him. He doesn't know the eventual outcome. Again, it's much like our experience in Wood Buffalo. We don't know as a community where the outcome will be, where this path is going to take us. Many of us come here as individuals. I came here 10 years ago not knowing where the path would take me and not knowing what the outcome would be. We go on this journey. We're taking it collectively. And I think this book resonates very well with this community for that reason alone. Thank you. If you build it, they will come. Absolutely. <laughs> and they're coming. Go on, share with, share with everybody. Tell us what you said. I said, if you build it, they will come. I was trying to do the disembodied voice. If you expand it, they will come. Right. Yeah, the, uh, it's another book that's sort of 
the journey is part of the theme and 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 for those of you who, who love uh, literature, the whole, the whole idea of getting to spend all that time with Jerry, Jerry Sailor, as he calls him, my buddy J- Jerry kind of thing, <laughs> is just fascinating because he was this, this sort of mysterious literary figure. And to, to have a book where the guy says, yeah, well, you know, I bought him coffee and took him to a Red Sox game and all that. <laughs> I want to know what what Ray was growing in his cornfield. (laughs) (laughs) He was hearing voices after all. That's the sequel where Jerry goes off to find out. Just a kind of skepticism, one would say. One sign of a great book is its ability to surprise, inspire, and maybe even shock readers, whether with a bold new idea, a suspenseful narrative, or a controversial topic. Again, without giving away any of the plot twists, can you give us some insight into how your book might provoke emotional responses from a reader? What did you feel when you read it? How did it change your thinking or your perspective? Rebecca. So, I'm not a crier. I rarely cry. I never cry during movies. And I almost never cry when I read books. So I always consider it to be the mark of a master story crafter if a book could squeeze a tear out of me. To provoke an emotional response, the reader needs to fully imagine themselves in the story, to identify with the characters as though they are living and breathing people, to soak in the plot as as one would a warm bath in full immersion. There are few books that can do this completely enough to draw an emotional response out of me, and Mrs. Mike is one of those rare few. And I think the reason this is done so successfully is because the reader really does grow with Kathy. You experience her coming of age as she comes to love and then she comes to hate and finally she comes to truly know and understand the land that she now calls home. In order for that to happen, she must experience her greatest joys and her deepest sorrows there. Experiences that change her forever as a person and carve her character from the raw material of girlhood in much the same way that a river etches the character of a stone. I found myself laughing along with Kathy and then most probably crying along with her as well, something that doesn't happen very often to me as a reader. And what's more telling to me is the fact that I laugh and I cry every single time I read the book, even though I know what's coming. While the story doesn't change, my understanding of it changes. And in this way, Mrs. Mike reaches out on a very different emotional level every time I read it. Also, I think it's all the more emotionally compelling because it's a true story. It really did happen. These characters were real people, and the events of their lives, both tragic and comic, were real events. Benedict and Nancy Friedman were good friends with the real-life Catherine Mary and told the story of her life based on her own account. That's what makes the story, which is unremarkable on its face, it's just an ordinary story of an ordinary woman in an ordinary life, so deeply moving because it's a true story, as all the best stories are, at least on some level. I got caught there, sorry. I can go on. (laughs) Tim? Well, I was surprised. Uh, I went into this begrudgingly. Uh, I went into a a book rack. I pulled the book up. I looked at it. I read the spine. I read the fly leaf. And I said, I'll read this book. And my wife said, that's all it's going to take for you to read a book? And I said, yeah, I'm just going (laughs) through the motions. Uh, and I went through the emotions instead, and it's taken me a long time to come to fiction. I expect most people in this room are into fiction already, and naturally so. So the surprise to me is that this has taken me there, and if you're already there, 
it'll be so much easier for you and you'll enjoy it so much more. Because uh, I have to read it twice now. Because I read it in its own context, and now I'm going to read it again, understanding what it's derivative of. I'm going to the, going to the original text. And I, so I'm going to be reading at least three fiction books in the next little while, this one twice. Uh, and, and then as I, started, as I started researching it as to uh, the emotional response from a reader, oh my gosh, have any of your books launched a, a Tony Award winning Broadway play? Yeah, you got a couple, you got a film out of it, but it's really the same Quixote story. Uh, Shoeless Joe is about a guy that's totally delusional, follows his dreams, he's crazy as a hoot owl, and, uh, and, and, every, and everybody, everybody loves him. He tilts, he tilts Skate, in a cornfield and goes to a windmill. Skating a bit close, Mr. Chapman, skating a bit close. Well, you know, I'm a lawyer. Okay. <laughs> is that what I, what all I'm getting at is every, every comment that I've heard, I say, I, it's in the book, it's in the book, it's in the book. This is the derivative novel for everything that I've heard in every place else. I really encourage you to read everybody else's book, but you'll sell yourself short unless you start on this one because it changed my thinking and my perspective. And you guys who do fiction, if you haven't read Quixote yet, if you have to start with this book, you'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy Quixote that much more. I'm just discovering Quixote. It changed a lot of my life. Don Quixote or Monsignor Quixote? Monsignor Quixote uh, got Wh- me Which is it, a derivative so. of Don Quixote, right? No, what I'm... What, it's, a good, it's, a good, it's a good comment, but when you're, when you're dealing with a derivative novel, you have to go and deal with, with, the, core, with the core piece. And, I'm sorry, Tito, you've got to deal with the core piece, and uh, they, are, they are of the same, and there's thousands of pieces of work that do the same thing. And of course, Ken, you're now stuck because you're going to be have to re- reading more because Graham Greene, in fact, also stole this idea from Giovanni Guareschi. And so did Dostoevsky. You may never get back to non-fiction. I'm sorry you know that now. I'm scared of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Anybody who's read Lord of the Rings, and there might be a few of you in the audience, must read this series. It And... You know, its ability to surprise, it's such a, it's such a game changer in terms of, in terms of the fantasy genre. Think of 60s Batman versus Heath Ledger Batman. Think a derivative of Don Quixote or the actual Don Quixote 800 page book, which fortunately I'm not up against today. The real power of this book is the no language, illusion. Yeah, the, the real power of this book is the prose, the language, the atmosphere that uh, that George uh, R. R. Martin uh, creates, and I think the the popularity, the Emmy Award winning popularity of, uh, of of the adaptation of George R. R. Martin's book. And the, the closeness, you know, you can read the book and you can look at the characters on the HBO, on the, on the actual series, and it's amazing how close, it's sort of how you'd envision them when you read the book. It's a lot different when you read a book and you see a movie, whether the, whether the character they use in the movie matches your sort of perception of, uh, of, what, you, of what you had in your head when you, were at, when, when you were reading the book. And this is pr- it's probably one of the most stunningly well done adaptations i've i've ever seen of uh of of any of this stuff I, it's up there with the lord of the rings movies in terms of what they've done there and uh it, and that's a testament to george r r martin's writings he he describes the scenes he sets up the characters and so many different things happen you know and as it goes through 
people's different varying interactions. And uh, it really does, you know, once you get to know these characters and something bad happens to them or something good happens to them, they have a triumph, they have a massive defeat, they die. Um, that's the real, that's the real surprise in the book. The, the, those are the surprises in the book. And that's why the book's such a, such a page turner and why the series is getting more and more popular, uh, more and more popular as it goes along. Um, in terms of whether it changed my thinking or, or perspective, it certainly did in terms of the genre. Like I said, I was bored of fantasy. I had read a lot of the of the major series. It was all the same, and uh, it was it was quite a quite a change. It sort of kept me in there um, when he came out with this, and super excited when I was like, "Oh wow, they're coming out with an adaptation to this!" And they actually stuck with it. They actually showed the sort of brutality, and uh, I mean, even for people who are used to watching, you know. Uh, the Sopranos or something like that. This is like Sopranos times 10 in terms of some of the violence and intrigue and the stuff that goes on um, in it. So uh, it's got a level of believability uh, as well to it. You actually could believe people acting in uh, in this way. All you have to do is read the, note, read the news to know that this isn't some fantasy creation. People actually do this all the time. So you'll find that extremely compelling. It- there was actually a quote on the, the HBO series. I, I didn't, don't know the characters' names, but the, the character of Sean Bean who died. Oh, uh, but, the, yeah. The, 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 the big star spoiler alert. So, so, <laughs> spoiler. Somebody actually wrote about that. And not since Alfred Hitchcock killed Janet Lee in Psycho has there been such a shock on the screen. Yes. And uh, certainly that, that, that attests to Martin and, and what he does with his characters and, and the surprises and everything. Yeah, that was real Jaja. See, she went, she's totally shocked. (laughs) Ned's my favorite. He was mine too, but dead. Just like Dead like Superman. The the YMM podcast team. Hello, I am Tito. I'll be speaking again. So, the saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. The photorealistic nature of Marvels speaks volumes. One of the most compelling things about Marvels is how it takes place during the time of the publication of the original comics. To that end, Captain America did fight in World War II, Spider-Man worked for the Daily Bugle in the 1960s, real-life celebrities from different eras are peppered in into some of the panels, uh, the wedding of the Fantastic Four, the Beatles are there, um, even characters from other comics. Clark Kent makes an appearance in the third page. Um, and most interestingly, the X-Men. They were formed during the American Civil Rights Movement. One of the more heartfelt moments in Marvels is the part about Maggie. Maggie is a mutant like the X-Men, but she has no special powers. She simply looks different, and she is treated the same as some others who look different during the 1960s. I'm going to read a small excerpt from the book. Um, Sheldon, Sheldon has Maggie living in his basement. Nick Cosgrove and Arthur Lindstrom out of there. out there with their guns. They were friends of ours. We played bridge with them, but they knew. They'd burn this house down and us in it if they knew we were sheltering a mutant. They were that scared. I was that scared. But there was something in her eyes, its eyes, and I couldn't help but think of the liberation of Auschwitz and the look in their eyes. And, dear God, Doris, she's just a little girl. It's something very interesting how you can grab something that was meant as just you know, a story to entertain people, but really make it mean something else. To that end, even Brian Singer used the X-Men in the most recent uh, reboot in the early 2000s as basically an analogy for um, gay rights. So, I mean, to that end, it's very, it's surprising that even in 1994, that 
these comic book characters are being used to not only be relatable to you know regular readers, but the the readers that have you know maybe been uh, old uh, that are older and have been through events like this. So, thank you. And of course, one of the things about it is that. Uh, one of the big surprises is how relatable the the audience has been to the sort of taking the superhero story and taking it back to reality. Because Busek went on from there to do Astro City, which was a whole theory, the whole series on real uh, superheroes. Exactly, and you could also make the the debate that Marvels is actually the blueprint for the modern superhero movie period. Yeah, and uh, and, and from there, of course, there was that um, I forget the, the the name of the guy who took the more dystopian view. And uh, Marvel published Ruins, which was was taking the Marvel series and yes. going one step further. Been by radioactive spider, die of cancer. Exactly. <laughs> and the whole g- g- gamma rays. Okay, well, you're going to die of tumors in your brain. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Kind of a Hulk, just a different type. <laughs> Teresa, after that, sorry about that. <laughs> try try and beat a tumor in the Hulk's brain. <laughs> ah, that's a challenge. Uh, <laughs> I think it would be difficult to read Shula's Joe and not have an emotional reaction uh, to the book, simply because, as I stated, it's, it's a journey of the heart. And I think most of us at one point in our lives have, have taken a journey of the heart of, of some sort or a journey of faith, whether it's in a new career, uh, having a child, any of those, uh, those things we do in our lives. Uh, so I think it's, it's difficult to not have an emotional reaction to Ray's journey. Um, I read Shoeless Joe when I was in grade 10. And uh, I think that's a pretty formative time in your life. And as some of my esteemed panelists have, have indicated, uh, there are people who would look at uh, Ray Kinsella and think he's crazy. He's delusional. He's, he's hearing voices. In fact, someone close to me said, I think he might be schizophrenic, mummy. Uh, <laughs> the point was, though, how many of us have had an idea, a thought, a belief, a dream, and worried about sharing it with other people because it would be viewed as crazy? or that other people would see it as delusional, or scared to even follow it ourselves because we thought it would be delusional or crazy to do so. Uh, It absolutely changed my thinking because it made me realize that sometimes we need to follow our dreams or our beliefs because our journey may not be the same as everyone else's. Uh, The path we choose to follow is an individual path, and we find the courage to do so by understanding that not everyone shares the same path, the same journey. And other people may think that your individual journey is crazy. doesn't mean you shouldn't follow it. Uh, so, uh, like Ray Kinsella, uh, in some ways in, in my own life, I've followed journeys that other people probably would not have taken. Uh, and I can only say it's worked out quite well for me. So, uh, it absolutely had a profound impact on, on my life. Thank you. It's also a book where the movie almost does it justice, and I say that in, in, with the best of intentions because the, 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 the movie makers wisely tried not to cover the whole script yes. because they couldn't, and they took a little bit of it and, 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 and did that very well. But having seen the movie first and then read the book, I urge you, see the movie first and then read the book because the book is just so much better, even yes. though the movie is a good movie. Because otherwise you'll fall victim to that. Oh, I've read the book and the movie is a disappointment. The movie is not a disappointment if you see it first. So please <laughs> go and get it and then read the book the next day. We have had a suggestion from the, the ladies in charge of the evening. And it's a very good one that we've all been sitting on our backsides. Now, you guys all have nice padded chairs. 
for some reason, to keep me awake, I think I got the wooden chair. <laughs> so we are going to take a 10-minute stretch our legs, walk around the room, have a nice drink at the back there, break. And those of you who are very bad people and smoke cigarettes, outside quick and back quick. Ladies and gentlemen and Totsky, the, uh, the gong is about to gong. May we, may we have the sound of a gong, please? Okay, this requires a lot of audience imagination. <laughs> I was actually going to ask uh, Kevin, me and Teresa were talking at the break. Do we get extra points for coming to costume? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely for Because I, I was, I was <laughs> just in the bathroom and I ran into a guy from the gym. He's like, why are you wearing a cape? <laughs> why aren't you wearing a cape? If you have to ask, you wouldn't understand. <laughs> yeah. I told him I was just here for quick workout. <laughs> I'm, I'm only here to do good. <laughs> a note on a slight deviation. Uh, we have one more question to throw at the panel, and then we're going to have a quick 30-second question, which will have rules and regulations attached, and I shall surprise them with that at the end of their last formal question. At which point we will throw it open to the audience. If you have any questions to any of the panelists, feel free. You can stand up, you can shout, you can pass them forward and get somebody else to read them. But please, if you wish to get involved, if you ask, no matter how inane a question, it will be good. And we'd love your input. The final question before the conclusion and all the other fun stuff that starts. Tell us a little bit about the setting and the background of your chosen book. Why do you think local readers would enjoy the setting? What aspects of the setting stood out for you? And I do feel that this is loaded in your favor, Rebecca, so you again may go first. Well, it's the setting of this book. That's what makes it a classic, in my opinion. So Kathy comes from Boston, and she goes to Calgary. And, and remember that this is back in 1905. There were no cars. She traveled... Uh, from Boston to Calgary by train. And that was a big leap for her because at that time, Calgary, it was a frontier town. And uh, it was very different from cultivated Boston that she was used to. When she went north, it was a completely different story. Um, I think the closest comparison I can make to Gruart at the time is it's similar to Fort Chip today. It was about as far north as you could go. You could only get there in the wintertime because you had to travel over frozen rivers, much like going to Fort Chip today, and you could only go by dog sled because you couldn't possibly take a horse up there. Um, in this community, there was no medicine. The only vaccines that could have been brought in had to be brought in fresh at the time. That was medicine at the time. And plagues would sweep through these communities and decimate them and kill nearly everybody. Um... At the time, uh, mosquitoes would kill people. People would get lost in the bush, and they would die as a result of being bitten by mosquitoes. At the same time, though, the setting is beautiful. Um, she talks a lot about the northern lights dancing across the sky. She talks uh, about river break and what that looked like. For any of you that have seen it here, been lucky enough to, to witness it and been around when it happens, it's an amazing phenomenon, and uh, the description of the book is dead on. Um, the parallels between Fort McMurray and Gruard are, are pretty clear. And the other thing that I thought was really um, an appealing about the setting that people from here would appreciate is the fact that um, the way that you made friends there, you made friends as a survival mechanism. You had to because you depended on your friends to get through. 
And I found that was the same in Fort McMurray. I have lived in a lot of places. And um, since I moved here, I've moved away and come back and moved away. And I have never encountered a place like Fort McMurray where it's so easy to make friends. You can make friends with anybody here because everybody here comes from away. So I find that I see so many parallels between this setting and Fort McMurray. I remember moving here and seeing the Northern Lights and being amazed by them because we don't have those in Southern Saskatchewan where I'm from. So um, I think that when you read this book, you can't help but draw the parallels to Fort McMurray where we live today. And that's what that really resonates with readers and makes you feel like you're really inhabiting the book because we live there too. Tim? The setting in this book doesn't really matter because it can happen anywhere. The setting in this book is truly in the, in the imagination of the characters and the interpretation of their reality. And I think that when you look at when you look at that and you consider that, and an impossible dreamer uh, who has been totally influenced by his, his reading and his background and it believes it all to be true, reading books of chivalry, and he sets out to revive chivalry. And he sets out to slay, not dragons, uh, but giants uh, that he mistaken, mistakes windmills for. That's turned into a cliche. Uh, we all know what that means, tilting at windmills. This book is full of those kinds of references. And you, when you read it and you understand this in the, in the larger context, you will pick those references up. So it'll be, it'll be very familiar. Um, so the setting is in the imagination and the fact of illusion. And I think that why I would try and parallel that to what's going on in this region is, is very much what other people have said, is that people come up here and what we're doing is 21st century pioneering. And we're tilting at huge dragons. Uh, the impressions that are of this community and of the people here uh, are some of those dragons we have to tilt at that we know that we're right and they're wrong, but they don't they don't see it that way. To live here, you must be delusional. Uh, you you're, you're something. Your lance is broken. You can't handle the fight, um, but we do. And um, the the, tra the the tragedy of this story that is different, I think, from Fort McMurray is at the end both in, in the original and in this novel, uh, the character comes out of their illusion, comes back to reality, understands what's really going on, and dies. When they finally come back out of their dream, the tragedy is that they die. I don't think that's going to happen here. I don't think that we're in, in illusional. I think that we are 21st century pioneering in, a, in an entirely different context. But what's, what's nice about this setting, it's about the imagination. And that is the essence of the story. Is where does a person's imagination and their belief systems go, and where will that take you? To be here, you got to be a lever. you got to be a believer, too. If people think we're just transient, but we're really about believers, not being a lever. Thank you. And you're right. Green could have put that book anywhere. He chose to use Spain just, to, I think, because maybe he was even living there at the time. It might have been that simple a reason. It was, just, it was just a homage to Cervantes because it's yeah. originally in Spanish. Whereas uh, the Mrs. Mike definitely could only be in one location. It, 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 it's, you couldn't move that one to Botswana. be interesting to try it that. Could, but it would yeah. be a different book. Talking of location, Kyle? Well, in terms of the setting and the background, there's a couple of things to take in, uh, into account. You can't think of medieval history without thinking of what preceded it. What preceded it was Rome. You had this massive continent-spanning, multiple continent-spanning 
empire, which eventually collapsed. Rome was sacked, and all the other people all on the outskirts sort of had the had to uh, pick up the pieces. Picture Edmonton no longer in Calgary, no longer being there, and we're up here in Fort McMurray. What are you going to do? Where are you going to get your resources? How are you going to manage? How are you going to do what you need to do? And that's sort of the context into which this the Seven Kingdoms came out of that. But there's an inherent instability to that sort of feudal setup for anybody who's has some idea of what the politics were like at the time. At the same time, you know, the world because you're in a in a in a different in an alternate world. This world in this world, summers last for about five years, and winters can last for up to twenty. So the seasons are different in in the world of uh, in the world of Westeros. You can you can imagine, and you have children who are born in the summer who've never gone through the winter. And the the saying of the Starks, which is the main family from the north, in the book is winter is coming, which is very dour and depressing. But as they say about the Starks, they're always right. Winter will eventually come. Things will eventually get cold and worse. And it's just something that you're going to have to uh, endure. And that's sort of the background of the book. And anybody who's lived in this community knows that winter is something to be uh, endured. Um, In terms of the aspects of the setting that stood out for me, I mean, just the varying type, just the geography of the book. I mean, when you take a look at the HBO series, they film the north parts in the in in, in Iceland on a glacier in Iceland. They do the uh, sort of the, the the rich kingdom parts, I believe, in, uh, in Hungary, uh, in an old city in Hungary. And the next filming is going to be in in Morocco for some of the other series. So you can think about the differences between Eastern Europe, North Africa, and Iceland uh, in terms of the, the scale and and the work and sort of the the rich diversity of uh of the places that the various characters in the book uh in the book go so it, it's got a epic uh epic uh background and and setting and uh you won't if you prefer sunny places they'll be there and if you prefer dark and cold places uh like Fort McMurray in about 3 months then uh you'll enjoy that uh, as well so uh not to depress you it's still august but not so long. winter's coming <laughs> that's a fact. Yeah. And on that optimistic note, we will move to Tosky and Tita. Alright, my go for this one. Okay, Marvels. Set in New York between the years 1939 right on through to the 1970s. The artist Alex Ross does brilliant work illustrating this world and making it as photorealistic as possible, which is very unlike normal typical comic books. Uh, I know one example is you get Metropolis in Superman is very much of just an endless city and, and it spans on for miles and miles. Uh, this book is actually quite contrary. It's uh, we're, we're dealing with incidents that happen in the suburbs. Uh, rates, uh, the actual case of the one Tito read out for you, the case of Maggie the mutant. This happens right outside the uh, uh, Phil Sheldon's home. We're dealing. We're right into the suburbs where large mobs are gathering around. Uh, so this is quite contrary to a lot of what we're used to with uh, with comic books, where we're right in the heart of downtown, which always seems to be the place. Um, a lot of the cool settings too with this book is that you're getting a lot of third-hand information. Like uh, it's from the viewpoint of Phil Sheldon, which is a photojournalist. So you're getting to what they're hearing on the news. Uh, the Human Torch battles the Submariner upstate. So you're you're given the visual of what what they're they're listening to it on the radio. So you're, you're going to have to visualize it, which is exactly what they're doing in the comic book. Uh, a lot of newsreel settings, like back in during that era, they get a lot of updates, just kind of like wartime. Uh, they go to a movie at night, and before the movie, you get 15 minutes of 
your wartime updates. But instead of here, we're getting what's going on in, in New York or what's going on in a certain spot where the Fantastic Four are battling Galactus or, uh, again, the Human Torch, Submariner, uh, Green Goblin, and, and Spider-Man. So it's really cool <coughs> settings-wise because you're getting a different perspective on what you would normally get in a typical comic book where you're just seeing uh, the viewpoint of Spider-Man or the Green Goblin. Uh, many of the... Uh, Many of the characters feel ripped out of an Edward Hopper painting, uh, and the superheroes and villains' costumes appear cinematic in nature, as Tito pointed out earlier. Uh, since Marvel, uh, Marvels was actually published in '94, this is before all the current superhero movie areas, uh, movie eras of today. Uh, so, to that end, much of the iconic imagery in Marvels has been seen in many of the superhero movies that have been released in the last 15 years. So it, it goes on to say that the perspective is really key for me in this book because it's a lot different than what you would normally see in a normal comic book. And to me, that's what makes it so special. And it's real, unlike the, 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 the DC universe where the, the city's arms real. <coughs> anybody who's been to New York or anybody who lives in New York, and then this is what Stan Lee did in the 60s when he was doing Spider-Man, you could recognize the, 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 the drawing was accurate enough. You could actually recognize where Spider-Man was swinging around. And people would wander around, sort of say, well, that's where he was in issue number 114 kind of thing. So the setting is key to it, as you said. Yes, very much. Teresa, you get to go first next time. <laughs> Fundamentally, there's, um, there's two settings in the novel Shoeless Joe. The first, of course, is a, a corn farm in Iowa. And I suppose what stood out to me about this setting is it's a bit remote, a bit isolated, and it's, um, it's nothing special. It's nothing unique. It's a corn farm like thousands of other corn farms across America. A lot like a place in northern Alberta. Nothing special, nothing unique. And yet from some place where nothing is special and nothing unique, something amazing comes. Something amazing is happening. In Shoeless Joe, it happened in a, uh, on a corn farm in Iowa. In Canada, it's happening in Fort McMurray, Alberta. Something amazing is coming from a place that really, in many ways, is not special or unique, and yet it's becoming special and unique. The other setting of Shoeless Joe is very much in Ray Kinsella's head. Ray Kinsella is a man who's having an identity crisis. He doesn't know if he's the insurance salesman he used to be, the corn farmer he's supposed to be, or the visionary that he seems to be becoming. And again, I think what stands out for me about that setting and what I think is relevant to people in this community about that is I think we have an identity crisis as well in this region. Are we industry? Are we a community? Or are we something that's becoming much, much more? Uh, and I think we're starting to find our identity. We're starting to find our path and we're starting to follow our journey, much like Ray Kinsella started to find his path and identify who he was by having the courage to follow it. I think we in, in this region are going on that same sort of journey, or that same sort of path. And uh, I think that's why this setting and, and background of this novel, again, uh, plays very well in our community. Thank you. And for once, I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But well yeah. done. <laughs> Home run. <laughs> we did have a spare question, and I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit here, and I'm not making a three-minute question. And... The question is, if you had to endorse a Fort McMurray Reads book other than your own selection, which one would you choose? Now, I'm going to add a rider to that because I suspect that I'm going to stop uh, an argument in the tracks. You may not say none because my book is the best because that is the cheat's way out. <laughs> if you have not read any of the other books, 
You may base your decision on the arguments you've heard this evening, but I would like you to pick another book, as second, of course, to your own, if you were going to choose one. And we're going to start at the far end with Teresa. Uh, this might come as a surprise to some people, but uh, the book I'd actually pick, if uh, not my own, would be Marvel's. Um, and I think it's because of superheroes. Well, we've heard talk about, you know, certain books having a history of 400 years, etc. Uh, I think the concept of superheroes is timeless. The idea that someone ordinary can become a superhero. In my book, it's Ray Kinsella. In Marvel's, it's other people. And uh, I think that's why I would, I would choose Marvel's. I should, have, I should have mentioned you only get one minute on this as well, by okay. the way. Keep coming. Keep coming, you guys. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, it was pretty hard to choose, actually. I tried to read all the books. The only one I couldn't get through was uh, this one, which is huge. Um, but I would have to say it's uh, Mrs. Mike, um, probably because it has the most in common with the themes in Fort McMurray. Um, it is highly romanticized, but I couldn't help but feel for characters like Tommy um, or even the, the battle between uh, uh, her husband and the wolf. Um, but uh, I'll end it on this quote, which, um, taken out of context, could be seen as poor, but I see it very hopeful. There's something in this country that nails you down and keeps you here, which is said by a character by, uh, by the name of McTavish. <laughs> For more on that debate, listen to the Wyman podcast. Keep coming this way, Kyle. I would probably, it's... The book that's been talked about, but I would go with the original Don Quixote, the one that's thicker. Yeah, I would definitely go for Don Quixote. I haven't read Don Quixote yet, but it's pretty timeless. Uh, pretty timeless story, and you know, running around with his donkey—that's his horse, <laughs> his broken spear—and he's a knight, and uh, all of, with his with his poor sidekick. Uh, Definitely. Um, Can joke. you rebuttal, please? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I would. Uh, I go to Shoeless Joe. Is um, I think if you wanted to read a book that you could identify with and you could read in the context of Fort McMurray, it would be a wonderful book to read. We have built it, and they have come. Okay. And Rebecca. Um, well, for those of you that read my book reviews, it's come as a surprise, but I would choose A Dance with Dragons. I, I hate fantasy. I hate it. I can't stand it. <laughs> but um, I bought my husband that DVD for Father's Day and made me watch it with him, and I was just ripped by the story. And so he said, you should read the book. I said, oh, I hate it, but I will read it to prove me wrong, and I could not put it down. I tore through it on our vacation in about probably about four days. And so, um, yeah, I would pick that. It's a gripping story. It's historical fiction. It's, it's actually really good. Where are you up to now? I had just started the second one, but nice. I had to stop it. <laughs> okay, lest anyone think that that was a fix, because each one of them nominated one other book. Every book was nominated once, and for the most part, people were polite. It was not a fix. We, they knew the question. <laughs> They, they, they knew the question might, might be out there, but they didn't know the writers I was checking in, so that was very nice. Uh, we have now reached the end of our discussion round. I had to find my place there for a second. And I would like to invite closing statements from each of the members of our panel. This is our panelists' last chance to persuade you, the voters, that their book is the one you should choose for the Fort McMurray Reads book of 2012. This time again, we will start at the other end with Teresa. 
Thanks, Kevin. Uh, to start my summation, I want to read the quote that uh, W.P. Kinsella uh, chose to start Shoeless Joe with. Uh, I'd also like to mention I had the pleasure of meeting the author of this book uh, about two decades, and he go and he's the Canadian. Mark Twain. He's an incredible storyteller, uh, and meeting him put this book into great context for me. The quote is, some men see things as they are and say why. I dream of things that never were and say why not. Bobby Kennedy. I think that's a pretty fundamental quote for what's happening in this region, and that's one of the reasons I, I chose this book as the book that everyone in this region should read this year. We are on the cusp of something in this community. I keep saying it because I keep feeling it. We're on the verge of something astonishing happening here and something perhaps that is unique in the entire world and certainly unique in North America. We're following our dreams. We're following a path. We're following a journey. None of us knows where it's going to end, but we have the faith and the belief and the heart to follow it through. The quote that everyone knows from the movie, most likely, is, if you build it, he will come. There's another quote in the book that I think is, is phenomenal, and it says, go the distance. That speaks to me, and I think it speaks to this community, because I think in order to follow a dream through, you have to be willing to go the distance, to see it through to the end, regardless of the outcome, regardless of where it's going to go, regardless of what's going to happen. And I think that's why everyone in this community should read this book. We're all following dreams here, whether it's a dream in industry, whether it's a dream in community, whether it is a personal dream. That's why everyone needs to read this book, because I think it will actually provide the courage to follow those dreams, even when other people might say they're delusional or crazy. Thank you. Tosky and Tito. Okay. Um, as we said, this is a story of perspective. Essentially, when we go out of Fort McMurray and we talk that we're from Fort McMurray, a lot of people kind of write it off immediately, uh, whether we go to Edmonton or even a, into another province. Um, simply stated, when we were asked to come and talk about marbles, a lot of people uh, immediately, I heard that someone at the library said, well, why is a comic book being put on the panel? The truth is... A lot is under the surface, both in the comics, the comic genre, and in Fort McMurray. Uh, to put it simply, um, this is a book that's going to surprise you. It's got a lot of meat to it, even though it's, it's the thinnest out of all the books here. But like I said, a picture's worth a thousand words. And I guess simply put, it's easy to be brave when everyone, you know, everyone else is behind you and you know, it's, comp it's complacent and commonplace to choose something that's, oh, that's the big book, let's choose that one. But like I said, the difference between dreamers and doers is the conviction to do what you believe in. And that's what these heroes are about. They're mod regular people that chose to you know, use what they had for good as opposed to you know, make, a, make a quick buck. So, I think Fort Murray is more than people just trying to make a quick buck. Thanks. Beautiful, man. <laughs> <laughs> You're penalized five points because only one of you can talk at a time. The best two words I can use to describe this book are compelling and uh, unpredictable. It also doubles as a handy workout material because, like I said... <laughs> It's thick, and since our library is at Mac Island, it's the perfect book for the public, for a public library. So uh, I really recommend that you read this book. I think uh, for those that have just watched it uh, on TV, you know, uh, uh, 
our moderator here said, you know, why did you pick book number five? And I was like, because it's called Fort McMurray Reads, not Fort McMurray Watches. But uh, <laughs> um, I really recommend that you take the book, you, you do the read, you start with a Game of Thrones, you watch the series. If you've seen the series, it was easy for me to watch the series. And you pick up a lot of the nuances that are actually in the series in terms of how the characters interact that you will not pick up on um, if you don't. So uh, if, if you haven't read the book, you work your way through it. You know, the series is going to be going on HBO because it is popular probably for the next five, six, seven years, depending on how big this series grows. It's supposed to stop at seven books, but epic fantasies have this uh, horrible, uh, epic fantasy authors have this horrible habit of, you know, the universe expanding. Robert Jordan got to book number 10 and he died. So, and then he has another author doing the last two books. So I don't want that to happen with this one. So I hope he wraps it up at, uh, uh, at seven. Um, the best, the best quote that pops to mind that you can say in play company comes from Tyrion Lannister. And, uh, he's traveling up to the, the, the big Northern wall, which is hundreds and hundreds of, feet high because he wants to pee off the wall just to say that he did. Um, but the one thing he's doing on the way is he's reading and, and Jon Snow is traveling up there to take up his, uh, to join the, to join the Night's Watch, to take his vows and all of this stuff. And he goes to Tyrion, he knows, you know, why do you read so much? Tyrion's, and Tyrion's a, a, a dwarf, you know, he's not, you know, a knight or anything, but he's the son of uh, the richest family in uh, in Westeros. And he goes, uh, books are like a whetstone. Whetstone sharpens swords and books will sharpen the mind. And the mind's the only thing that I have. And uh, this book or this series will definitely sharpen your mind. It will definitely uh, bring you into uh, an extremely fascinating uh, uh, fantasy world and into the mind of, uh, of George Martin. And uh, you won't regret uh, getting into this series and you'll... Uh, find the uh, TV version much more uh, enjoyable uh, if you do. Thank you. And Kate. Um, as I said in the beginning, I'd like to close with some quotes out of this book that I, I just wrote down when I was preparing today, but I again, it's ironic how apt they are for all the other books that are here. And I start right where I, I end where I started. There's no book so bad that it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't have something good about it. Um, in terms of winter's coming, if winter was here, for for Kyle's books, it, for neither good nor evil can last forever, and so it follows that since evil is lasting a long time, good must be close at hand. I'm much more optimistic about being in winter and coming out of it. Um, and for and for the Marvel book, is that virtue is persecuted by the wicked more than it is loved by the good? It seems to fix superheroes, right? And for, for Becky's book, it, the quote is, What man can pretend to know the riddle of a woman's mind? And, and for Shoeless Joe, I have this quote uh, from the book, Too much sanity may be madness, and the maddest of all is to see life as it is and not as it should be. And for the characters in this book and the characters in the base book, the one is facts are, facts are the enemy of the truth. Um, all those things, this book captures all of that. Um, you can do it in 232 pages in a more modern context. You don't have to go to 800 pages of an ancient context. But they're only 1,500 word chapters. They're very accessible. And you can pick it up. I've done that. I can pick it up anywhere and start in it now. And, and, be, and be in the moment. So yet the narrative will continue, will carry you through. But the, the language is lovely. The characters are, are charming. 
and disarming and cruel and engaging uh, and lovable and ridiculous. And there's satire and slapstick in this thing throughout. Uh, is there in, in this book, is it a, a priest that by accident becomes a monsignor and a communist in post-Franco Spain where they're being persecuted and, the, and they follow, they follow the, the adventures in a modern context with different kinds of symbolism that all relate back. It just, it's so universal. I'm gonna, I've, I've discovered fiction. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ken and Rebecca. Well, I could tell you why I think you should read this book and why you should vote for this book, but I think maybe a better means of convincing you is by showing you and not telling. So I'm going to read you a short passage from the first chapter of the book. Remember that it's set in 1905. My mother had her doubts about letting me go into such a wilderness. We looked it up on a map of North America, and Alberta seemed awfully empty. Our part of the country, which was Boston, was covered with winding black lines meaning roads and barbed wire lines meaning railroads and circles of all sizes meaning cities and towns. It was so crowded with these proofs of civilization that there was no room for the names which were stuck out in the Atlantic Ocean. In Alberta, there was none of this reassuring confusion. A couple of thin blue rivers, a couple of crooked lakes, and the mapmaker was through. My mother found the circle that was Calgary and carefully compared it with the circles of Massachusetts. A fine black dot it is, but not to be mentioned in the same breath as Boston, she said. Boston was a very distinctive city on our map, being a large dot with a ring around it. And you'll bear in mind, Catherine Mary, she added, that's as far north as I want you to go. Don't be letting your uncle take you up into this, she waved in the general direction of Mackenzie and the North Pole. My own mother lived and died in the house where she was born, and all the traveling she did was to the outfield and back. We both sat and wondered at the size of the world until she folded it up and put it in the bureau drawer. And now let me fast forward a hundred years to a story from my own life. A young girl married only a week and with the ink still wet on her education degree decides to take a leap of faith and leave the city where she's lived most of her life. She consults the map to see where this Fort McMurray is, this place where she's accepted her very first teaching job, and she sees a long expanse of green between here and there. In the middle, only a single thin line winds its way north. There are no towns along that stretch of Highway 63, nothing to indicate that she isn't leaving civilization completely behind. Will there even be a gas station on the way there, she wonders? In the end, though, it doesn't matter, because it's a grand adventure. It's the first real one of her adult life, and deep down in her heart, she's excited. She can't wait for her new life to begin, and she knows it will be difficult. There will be tough times ahead, but she also knows that there will be great joys, new friends, much laughter, a career, and a life. What is it about Mrs. Mike that's made three generations of readers treasure it? It's the same reason that makes it the perfect book for Fort McMurray. We've all of us come here from somewhere else to a place that seems strange and scary and hard to fathom at first, and we've made this place our home. We've overcome our own doubts and fears and forged ahead in the spirit of true pioneers and the spirit of Catherine Mary herself. This book speaks to all of us here in Fort McMurray, resonates deep within to a common experience that we all share, and that's why it deserves your vote. And I think she made it with four seconds to spare. I know. <laughs> I could hear her going at the end, the little engine that could, the little engine that could. <laughs> So we've been on a little bit of a journey. The stories are all journeys. We've come through a journey of questions and answers, and I hope we come to the end of our journey with a solution. From the American tale by the Canadian short story teller of legends, the graphic novel that outwatchman the Watchman, the epic book from the epic series that will keep you turning the pages and clicking back to HBO, the master writer of life and philosophy with a sense of humor at last, 
and the little northern book that could and does pluck at your heart. Ladies and gentlemen, the time has come to put your mark on a piece of paper. Thank you to our panelists for your passion and eloquence in supporting these five wonderful books. It's now up to you, the members of our audience, to vote for the Fort McMurray Reads book of 2012 from these great choices that our panelists have presented here tonight. On your chairs, your ballot forms outline your choices. Please check the box beside the one book that you would like to see become the Fort McMurray Reads winner. Once you're done, hand the ballots to one of the helpful FMPL staff who will be telling your votes. Any helpful FMPL staff who are telling votes, please now stand up. That's them. Casting a vote also puts you in the running to win the draw for tonight's door prize, a basket containing all the Fort McMurray Reads books. Stick around after you've cast your vote to discover the Fort McMurray Reads winner and to see the draws for the door prize or the grand prizes. And I've seen these prizes. They are worth waiting for the extra five or ten minutes because that's all it'll take. <laughs> so those prizes will be presented shortly. We will take a stretch a leg and go back and have another cup of coffee break for a couple of minutes. But do not stray or go away. We'll be right back with the prizes and the grand Thank announcement. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, as Kevin said, I had the pleasure of organizing Fort McMurray Reads and the Adult and Teen Summer Reading Program, which some of you might be participants in. Um, and first of all, on behalf of the library, I'd really like to thank our fantastic moderator, Kevin Thornton. And the phenomenal and incredibly articulate members of our Fort McMurray Reads panel, who did such a great job advocating for each of their chosen books. Um, the books collected by our panelists were all extremely compelling choices, and you should definitely consider picking them up when you come to Fort McMurray Public Library next time for your visit. Um, in addition, I'd like to congratulate all the members of our Adults and Teen Summer Reading Program for just an amazing summer of reading. I processed the nearly a thousand ballots submitted to this summer's program. Yes, count them, a thousand. And they're actually all just down here. I'm going to be doing a grand prize draw from them in a few seconds. Um, it, we had 200 participants in the program this summer and it was amazing to see the diversity and quantity of books that our community has been reading. So just like the, the event title says, Fort McMurray really does read. And I'm really, it's been wonderful to hear the diversity of reading that people have been doing in this community. Okay, and without any further ado, I'd like to announce this year's winning book for Fort McMurray Reads as chosen by all of you, our voters. The Fort McMurray Reads... <laughs> Should we do a drum roll? <laughs> okay, the Fort McMurray Reads book of 2012 is... Mrs. Mike, as ably represented by Rebecca Benoit. Congratulations, Rebecca, for successful advocacy for this book. And we encourage all of you to pick up all Mrs. Mike and all of our Fort McMurray Reads selections at your local library. 
Okay, well, thank you so much, everyone. That is a close to our evening. Um, and we thank you so much for joining us and for voting for the book that, you, that the community will be reading in fall. Thank you so much. All right, and there you have it, folks. Uh, a great, great event, uh, Fort McMurray Reads, put off by the Fort McMurray Public Library. Uh, they did an absolutely incredible job, and I think it was really, really cool to put um, the basically literature in the forefront. Uh, it was the accumulation of their summer reads program, uh, and it was it was just an amazing job. And I just want to thank uh, everyone at the public library for doing such an excellent job, uh, especially um, Megan Casey and Carolyn Murphy. Uh, good, good, good job, gals. And I just want to say on behalf of Tito and I, thank you for allowing us to bring a comic book into the fray. Um, we were very, obviously we were very serious in our arguments um, that it's not too often that you see uh, people bring comic books into the forefront and, and, and put it up against some of the amazing literature, literature works these days. And um, they uh, did it with all smiles. They wanted us to do it. Uh, they enjoyed it. And hopefully we show the world a little bit, uh, especially with Tito's epic closing argument. Man, I listened to that and I, I still get teary-eyed. Um, that I think we proved, hopefully we proved to at least some people out there that uh, comic books, graphic novels, uh, these things can and, uh, and always will uh, be able to stand up against uh, the world's greatest pieces of literature, uh, in my mind anyway. Like Tito said, a picture is worth a thousand words, so a comic book may not be as thick as a novel, um, but with pictures worth a thousand words, <laughs> it can be probably bigger so on that end uh thank you very much it was uh, for, to the public library it was really cool to be invited it was really cool they allowed us to do a comic book uh and it was just a really really fun time uh miss mike is the winner as you heard uh you can get that book and all the books that was on the former Grand reads panel down at the public library uh go ahead check them out on the website their website is www.fmpl.ca uh, and uh, it's really it, their resources is absolutely incredible. It, it, it's not just books. Uh, actually, a, a telltale story is when I downloaded the Fifty Shades of Grey because I wanted to uh, hear or I wanted to basically read what uh, everyone has been uh, talking about. And I don't really read books, so but I do listen to podcasts. And essentially, an audiobook is a podcast. So I downloaded the Fifty Shades of Grey from iTunes for like thirty bucks, and then I found out actually through Twitter that. Uh, the library, you can actually download audiobooks with a library membership, and library memberships are free. So that is absolutely incredible in my mind. Uh, and they do so much more. They got like, oh, they got amazing stuff down at the library. Uh, go check it out. Uh, it's a lot more than just uh, books, uh, but the main thing is uh, literacy for uh, people of all ages, uh, which is something that uh, is definitely uh, a thing that we kind of take for granted in the Western world. And because I know actually a few people I do know that can't read or write and to me it's just such a thing that's very that is taking advantage of that people should be appreciative every now and then so check it out former Prairie public library great event uh it was really really fun that's enough for me rambling uh you've heard my voice long enough hopefully you guys got through the podcast all right uh thank you for enjoying this ride uh it's been an absolutely incredible time so on that end on behalf of tito i am Todsky. we will see you next set
Man Podcast is a T-Man Entertainment production. In association with Hyperphotonic Media. Find us at hyperphotonicmedia.com. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Thank you.